Orwell once said, each generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. Differences of any kind, whether they be race, religion, gender identity, or values, can make us, or if we let them, as, as easily break us. Let's have ourselves a pocket-sized pep talk because there's so much potential value we can get out of leveraging generational diversity, and today's guest is going to tell us how. A pocket-sized pep talk, the podcast that can help energize your business and your life with a quick, inspiring message. Now, here's your host, Rob Jollis. Chris DeSantis is an independent organizational behavioral practitioner speaker, podcaster, and author with over 35 years of experience working with clients in professional service firms, both domestically and internationally. His new book is Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. Came out recently, just May 3rd. That was two days before my birthday, folks. So we want to welcome him to the show and have ourselves a good conversation. Welcome aboard, Chris. Thanks a lot, Robert. Thanks for having me here. And by the way, happy belated birthday. Thank you. I'm a Cinco de Mayo baby, if you didn't notice. Uh, well, it, it really is a pleasure. Let's just dive right in. And for me, it all sure. starts with the book itself. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a believer that books find us, not the other way around. So what drove you to this topic? Well, I've been working mostly with, at the time, about 18 years ago, I've been, I was working mostly with professional services firms. And I work across the whole spectrum of that, but I, I dealt a lot with young people. And so what, what I noticed was this crop of young people about 18 years ago was acting significantly different than my expectation of how they would normally have acted. And that was reinforced by the management. And they were saying, in effect, make them like us, make them like us. And I didn't think that was necessarily what was going to happen. And it didn't. Well, you were thinking youthfully, weren't you? Because uh, I, I know I've been stuck sometimes and can hear almost the get off my lawn <laughs> phrase coming out of my head. So a uh, bully for you for uh, jumping off, uh, I think, what's more instinctive, but clearly illogical. So uh, I, I applaud that. Now, there are other books on this topic. What, what makes yes. this one a little bit different? Well, it's a good question because... I had I probably read 50 to 60 of these books or books that relate to this. And I was looking for where's the space of difference. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying, I spent a lot more time explaining a couple of things. One is where does bias come from and why do we generalize? Because this is about perception and generalization. And you have to understand why, why humans do that. Uh, the other thing I, I also, I, I spent some time talking about societal difference and how that evolves. And the third element that I bring into play here a lot is parenting models. Hmm. Because the way you are parenting affects the way you interact subsequent to that because your expectations of an interaction are predicated on how you were raised. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I, I've written some sales books and I'm always trying to push my readers and my editors and my publishers to understand, yeah, we'll talk B2B and yeah, we'll do this. But what parent doesn't need to understand this. What manager doesn't need to understand this? I, I find your title, I, I connect to your title, by the way, because 
I was smiling when, when I first saw it and I thought, oh, I, I got this one. You know, I have a, I, we're not going to talk about my book a lot, but I've got one book called Why People Don't Believe You. Not too dramatically different, but- No, really I love that title. Dramatically different. I'm only smiling because I have to be careful when I recommend it to somebody. Because when I get really lathered up and go, Chris, I got the perfect book for you. Talking to you makes me think I've got the perfect book for you. Well, what's it called, Rob? Why people don't believe you, Chris? You know, it's almost like a weapon. And so I can see that you have to be a little bit careful because if you turn around and say, Rob, I got the book for you. Spending time with you, you're going to love this book. What's it called? Well, why people find you irritating. So welcome to the club of how we have to no, almost apologize right. or carefully bring that title into a conversation. Yeah. I'm a couple of years ahead of you, and I'm telling you, you got to be cautious. No, I know. I, in fact, when I, when I submitted, I, I, the, the publisher asked me for a title. I submitted 37 titles. And this is the one that they felt was the one that worked for them. But your point is correct, because when people look at this title, they, they either have one of two minds. One is, you think I'm irritating, or, aha, I'm going to finally find out why they are irritating. So, but you're right. I, I've not been in the place where I've been able to recommend it, but now I see the conundrum attached to this. Oh, the first time I had to, uh, I actually was inspired by a group I was working with of 40, 50 people, and the publisher told me, because I wanted to get a picture of them up in the, um, you know, up front of the book. And they said, well, you can right. do it, but you're going to have to ask them permission. You're going to have to be. So, so I told this group, I said, you know, I've got a book coming out. It was inspired by you. It's you. I want you to stand behind me. They all got behind me. And one guy said, what's it called? And I, I turned around. I said, why people don't believe you? And I heard laughter and kind of groaning at the same time. I went, of course not you. But so um, have some fun with it because I'm telling you, you're going to walk into that every now and then. Yeah, and, no, I uh, agree. But it's I sweet. Agree. Uh, you also, you. by the way, and I want people to hear this, Welcome to the world of writing books. You know, we sometimes nest with a title. Fact is, you had a lot of titles. You're a smart guy. Most people will have two or three, one of which they've been nesting with for two years. To this day, unless it's a self-published book, I've never met an author who had their first pick of a title be the first pick by, by the publisher, but we got to listen to them because they know what they're talking about. My, mine was going to be called It's Not the Words, It's the Tune. I snuck it into a chapter title. It, 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 I gave it some light, but that's these publishers know what they're doing. So, um, again, oh, who is the publisher on this one? This is, this is um, Mascot Books, which is okay. an imprint of Amplify Publishing. Got it. Well, they did a good job of, you know, as a guy who used to teach brainstorming and problem solving, to hear that you were working with 37, yeah. they want to shake hands with somebody and go, thanks for letting this author expand before he contracted. Too often, you know it. God, what do we got? All right, that time, here's two others. We, we're done. 37 is a big number. I had my first title I thought was great because it was, it was it's for business and i had i it was called b to z which i thought was baby boomers to, to zoomers but nah they didn't nah yeah. that went that tanked <laughs> I, I, just so you know i can hear the conversation in your head because i had it with me on one book title and the conversation is this chris love it and for anybody who's looking for a book 
you know, and is in this space, they're going to love it. The other nine out of 10 who see this book title will have no idea what you're talking about. And there's your 4.2 seconds. So that's why they tend to net it out a little bit more than we we're, we're, we're artists. I want to put a piece of art on the wall. They're like yeah. art smart. We want people to know what this is about fast. And so, um, well, this is the yeah. problem. Yeah. yeah, it's the yeah. problem with being so close to the topic. You, you, and you know, sort of that illusion of knowledge. Like they, they must know this. They must know. They must understand this. Well, they, you know, until you lay it out for them, I don't know if they do. Right, and it's not it, to them. They know what sells. And you yeah. know, as a sales guy, I'm thinking, yeah, let me get out of your way. I've got the inside. You tell me about the outside. All right, let's talk about the inside a little bit. Sure. You, um, you talk about different things. I'm looking at stages of life, okay, that we I'm familiar with versus generational differences, which you're writing about. What's the difference between the two? Well, I distinguish between the two. First of all, let's talk stages of life just for a second. There used to be four, right? You're a child, a young adult, an adult, and an elder. Those were the four stages of life. Now, because of the... um, uh, prolongation of adolescence and the extension of life itself, we're living longer, uh, the literature has us now down to six stages. Uh, the child, the young adult, the emerging adult, the adult, the elder, and bonus elderhood, that is 80 plus. So those stages of life are common to man, and I use man in the you know the generic mm-hmm. sense. So as a child, you, you are expo- more exploratory, and as you get older, uh, you become a little more rebellious, and then you start to find out who you're going to be, and then that you conform, and then as you age, you mellow, and you become a little more risk-adverse stages of life. Generational differences are predicated on what experiences you had that were unique to your awakening phase of life. So, for instance, when you were a child, were you a child in a time of abundance? Uh, I was born. I'm a boomer. Are you, are you a boomer as I am? Big time. Right in the middle of it. Yep. So we knew we knew what was going on. The society that we were all boats were rising. So we're part of this uh, growing middle class and all of these experiences we had. We saw people landing on the moon. So we had these uh, flashbulb memories that affect us. Those, are, those have indelibility in your early years. And so what happens with that is it starts to shape your view, which is distinctive from the stage of life. So it's, it's almost an overlay to the stage of life, but it makes you slightly different. It's like you're, we balkan, it's, I would call this a, um, a, a temporal culture. It's, it's, it's unique to the, our time, if that helps. No, it does, does that, help. Am I, it does help. And I'm, I'm smiling because uh, I'm going to steal a line from a financial advisor I saw on a stage one time. But, you know, as you talk about the stages, it, it, you know, expanding to more numbers there, uh, mm-hmm. he said uh, he was talking about Social Security. He said, you know, what's killing what killed Social Security was wounding it. Penicillin. And, and, and when I look at these expanding stages, I'm thinking, I think penicillin had something to do with it as well. We're just living longer. And right, uh, so, right. but it, yeah, because <laughs> these kids today, I mean, if you have children today, uh, middle class kids, one in three will live to be over a hundred. So wow, this, wow. it's going to be different. It's going to be different. And I'll tell you what else is going to be different. We're probably, although you, you are self-made, you have a career that is unique to who you are, but it is, it is a single entity that is the arc of who you are over this period of time. These young people might have three of those arcs. 
So they might have been, they might be, a, they might work for somebody, they might be an entrepreneur, and at some stage they might have this career of returning, you know, giving something back. So it's a little yeah. different. Right. I think that's hitting the boomers too. I feel that with me. I sort of saw it with my dad became, as he retired, big, big into the Lions Club and just started, you know, they, they started working at a sort of a thrift store that was run by the Lions Club and they were delivering food to the soup kitchens from the supermarkets and down in Florida where, you know, they retired and thinking, well, that's a, who has time for that? Now as, you know, I moved through my stages, I'm thinking, um, now I get it. Uh, that was just that next stage they went through, but that was the generation. That was the greatest generation. That was the one before, before us. But I certainly saw that particular stage, you know, uh, and I'm going to shift a little bit. Sure. You talk about something that, that really hits home for me. And that is when you when you talk about feedback and performance appraisals, and I guess how one generation hit and another generation hit it. Uh, but you don't care for them all that much. And I'm going to tell you right now, nor do I. I'm 30 years on my own, but I work for Xerox. I work for CSE. I work for a couple of big corporations. I experienced performance appraisals. Okay. Um, talk to me about that because I think you've got a fan. I just want to hear what, your thoughts on it. Well, here's a perfect example. You said uh, 30 years ago, you worked for Xerox. That was sort of a lockstep company. Mm -hmm. And so what you had to do is you had to perform what they wanted you to do. And then they moved you around almost like chess pieces saying, okay, well, we're going to put you here. We're going to put you here because you became interchangeable. So you were interchangeable with others because that was, and by the way, you were part of what I will call the covenant. The covenant was, if you do what I tell you to do the way I tell you to do it, you will have a job for life. So the performance appraisal wasn't a report card per se. It was just sort of, uh, uh, this is what you have to do next year. And this is where you have to live up to next year. So it didn't make you necessarily outstanding or otherwise. In, fa in fact, I, I, I think it makes us more commoditized because it makes us so much like anybody else. And so while that worked in that environment, because loyalty was the design that you did not leave that firm, you stayed with Xerox. And so when you stay somewhere and you have this interchangeable sort of uh, abilities, you stay within the framework of that. So the performance appraisal is more smoke and mirrors. It is not a, a, a declaration of how we actually going to develop you and what is outstanding and unique about who you are. You, oh. So it's different. Yeah. Um, I also found it uh, intimidating. Oh, I found it demotivating. Um, you know, it was you brought, bring up Xerox, love the company, and very, you, you hit it right on the head. You didn't tie your shoe at Xerox without a process. I mean, there's a process yes. for everything. But even the review process was carefully explained that it's one to five. You may get a five once in your career and uh, look at it as a trophy. Well, what if I want to exceed expectations every year? Uh, I can't, I can only win a trophy once. And what do you do with, um, you're more member at this, this is a sales organization. Salespeople by nature are competitive, um, with themselves as well. It seemed, um, almost like a, a game that was fixed in a sense. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it plays with the bell curve. The bell curve mm -hmm, yes. is 10% of us are, are above average and the 80% of us are average. And then, the, you know, the, we get rid of those, the bottom 10, we just get, and right. so, or we, or we, or in, 
40 years ago, we put them in HR, you know, I'm sorry. So we, we, right. the PIP. But yeah. so the, the problem with that is yeah. it doesn't leverage that what we could do. The, you know, the hardest thing about feedback is moving from good to great. Yeah. See, if you're good, nobody tells you anything because why, why would I spend any more time on you? Why would I do that? I've got to deal with these squeaky wheels or my, my, high, my high potentials. So we don't spend time in the performance appraisal system where we could most leverage it. And to your point, it is demotivating, it is adversarial, and it is not based on behaviors. It's based on conclusions. Yeah. Yep. And Chris, maybe you and I'll do this. We got to write a book called Good to Great. Uh, boy, did you just nail that. Uh, I have to tell you that from a different angle, because I taught managers for a while that mm -hmm. and I coached basketball, I coached 52 different teams. I mean, I had a lot of teams. Um, everybody has the, ten, the that one out of 10 who's great. Everybody has that one out of 10 that we made. It was a hiring mistake well, for whatever reason. Yes. No matter how careful, we're probably going to lose one that just probably shouldn't have been here. Okay. Now we got eight more out of that 10. And you see, even in, I'm going to move it to basketball, the coaches that develop that pocket uh, and move them to great uh, are dominant. I have winning teams. In other words, that's where the real leverage is coming from. Not from yes. my superstar. My superstar is no. being guarded by their superstar. Okay. Yes. Uh, and so, and yet, and I'll get off this in a moment, but it's important to me. And yet managers by um, instinct are trained to say, why would I want to give recognition to good? It's not great. When they get great, I'll give them recognition. Oh, I don't know. Maybe to inspire. You know, there, there are so many. Do you want them to be great? Probably a fair feedback. That's why I love the fact that you climb into feedback. Fair and balanced. And finding something, even if it's small, to tell them they're great at. You think they'll be not so great at that tomorrow? And maybe it does inspire them. I think we leave it on the table when we ignore good. I think that's where the wheelhouse of motivation is. Oh, absolutely. We are on the same page. with. Here's my problem. When you give these feedback, this universal performance appraisal, there is always areas, and they firms do this, they'll say, you need to improve here. Well, now you've diverted me from where I could be great, meaning I'm good at something. And if you just give me a little more time, energy and opportunity, I can be spectacular in this one area. But you're saying I should divert my resource and attention to come up to something, some deficit that should only just come up to average to begin with. Why bother? Right. Why bother? I say good enough is good enough in some categories, but excellent is outstanding in, in others. And that's what we should be playing because uh, I think work is a team sport and yet we, 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 we evaluate you individually. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Boy, that's a, I don't know if you're big on Twitter, but tweet that one. <laughs> By the way, I'm not you that big on Twitter. Credit. I'm giving that one to you because it's yours anyway, but that's a, that's a great quote. I'd love to see that one around. Um, all right. I'll give you another great quote. Looking at my notes on you, and you talk about embracing lopsidedness. Oh, yes. I'm all ears. What are you referring oh, yeah. to there? Well, I, I lifted this term from a book called Difference, and she's, uh, I think, Moon, Professor Moon at Stanford. And, and the idea here is some brands that, well, brands that are very successful have a lopsidedness inherent in them. Therefore, like a mini. 
mini car is small. Rolls-Royce is, is luxury. Volvo is, is safety. There's a lopsidedness inherent in the brand. Well, there's a lopsidedness inherent in each one of us. You have, a, you have a very strong presence about you and you have a willingness to want to help others and you have, you have the desire to sort of put what you say on paper. But I got to believe there's things you're not very good at. Who cares? Who cares? So I think we are all lopsided, yet we, we sometimes in a business, we try to make people universally great when it's a huge waste of time. And the young, in my opinion, have been told all of their lives that they are special rather than say you're not, this is what we were as boomers, you're not so special, rather than say that you say, what is it about you that is special that you can leverage for the greater good? That's yeah. what we should be going after. Yeah, beautiful. Um, you know, and if I can go back to feedback, what we typically hear yes. is you're really great at blank. If only you could apply yes. that to this. And which is basically, thanks for pulling the rug out from under me. Completely uh, making, I'll never even remember that you just gave me some form of recognition. And I'm walking out with my head down. Was that your intention? Uh, no, right, exactly. Well, it it's like those, it's like, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I want you to go. It was like, it's like the feedback sandwich, which I'm not a fan of that, that, that that's what, Hey, you did a really nice job here today. Oh, by the way, you burned the building down, but I love that you're on time. You see, right. so the, it's a horrible way to, because again, the, the negative is louder or they might be so uh, filled of love with themselves. They don't notice that they uh, burning down the building is a bad thing. Right. And the point is right. we're, we're saying that not to them for them. We're saying that for us to them. Right. Because we're uncomfortable saying what we need to say. Right. Yeah. Which is too uh, bad. I, I agree. And, and, and you know what? Let's take that sandwich idea and let's let's make it half full. Uh, to me, half full is um, is taking a um, working with a negative, but starting with a positive, hitting the negative and ending with a positive. And, and I don't mean. Um, devaluing what we're saying, but just using it as a transition. So I would flip flop that and say, if we want to use the word sandwich, we can use it for good, not evil. But, but uh, sometimes it's just, uh, even when we talk about ourselves, I work with people who are interviewing and they're being asked difficult questions. Why did you leave that other job? Things like that, which is the elephant in the room, but to say positively, uh, you know, that the, the company I work for had a tremendous track record on such and such, and I learned a lot in that area. Unfortunately, what happened during the merger was they had to, you know, our department was limited. Yeah. Factual. Okay. Right. But I'll always be grateful for the, the, the and finish it. Right. To me, that's a better tasting sandwich. Yeah. And well, what's interesting about what you're saying, Rob, you can say that more readily because it's not about the person sitting across from you. Right. If yeah, it's about true. the person, it, it has greater difficulty because yeah. I think what you should be saying is, look, Rob, you could be the best salesperson we have ever had, but the thing that's getting in your way is your abruptness. And so we need to work on that in service of the other abilities that you are, that are going to make you outstanding. So if you contextualize it against what they want anyway, be the best salesman with the skill set that they have, now they hear you. But if you just tell them, hey, you're kind of abrupt, they're going, whoa, 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 don't you even recognize that I'm a good salesperson? Right, right, right. right. That, and, and I'm guessing you'll typically hear that from somebody who's been in that chair before, 
and been undercut on the praise. Yes. Um, and yes. so, and, and, you know, when it's fair and balanced, as they say, um, people can hear it a whole lot easier. I want to shift a little bit uh, because I love the, you know, I so connected to this part of your book where you start talking about mentoring. And um, for me, I, I tell you, Chris, I barely ever heard of the word mentoring until, yes. you know, a few years ago. And every now and then, and, and early on, people would ask me, who's your mentor, Rob? And, um, you know, sometimes I'd say, I, I guess my dad. I'd say, no, no, I don't know. I'm so foreign to me, but not foreign to that, to a generation behind me, the generations behind me. Uh, talk to me, talk me through that a little bit. Well, we knew mentoring as an organic process, meaning that, look, somebody saw you as a young man and said, hey, you know, I, I kind of like what you got because it reminds me of me. Mm -hmm. And so that was, and by the way, we never would have said, we would never have said, I want you to be my mentor, <laughs> but we would have said that in reflection, you know what right. I'm saying? Years later. Oh, you know, he actually was my mentor. You, yes. So in that sense, the, the, the relationship being, it sort of bubbled up and, it, and all of a sudden in, in, afterwards we name it. Now, the insistence is, the, the, actually, what they want is they want somebody who is, pays attention to them uh, in terms of develops them and, and, and uh, uh, attends to them in the way their family has attended to them and, and the, the way they are embraced in their own homes. And they just want that extension into the workplace. We've used the phrase mentor, but it, the problem when you use this phrase is it implies intimacy where none has been earned. So um, you're, um, you're, if you're assigned a mentee or a protege, that's, that's the implication is I should want to know about your life and I should care about your life and you should care about mine. Well, it's only an assignment on paper. Don't use that word. Language has power. Right. I would use words like advisor or, or guide or, or buddy. But mentor is reserved for the intimacy of the experience because it creates false expectations. Wow, well said. And you know, you, you, you also hit it. I finally broke down, just like you said. When, when I was asked about uh, mentor, mentor, I had to sort of piece it back in and I went, uh, Larry, Dennis, first trainer at Xerox. I had no, I didn't call him a mentor. No. But he, but he fits the definition. I, I, 25 years later, I decided, I decided he was my mentor. Yeah, yeah, right. We never use this language. And, and, no. And, and by the way, we also, this is one of the problems, with, we resent them for wanting this because we, we felt we had to earn it and they think they are entitled to it because that's part of the misperception of who they are, the assignation right. of you're entitled. Right. And I think it's a very unfair uh, accusation of them uh, when it's not necessarily true to all of them, maybe a few, who knows. Right. And yet I have people yeah. now who call me their mentor. At, at first I was a little uncomfortable. I was thinking, does that make no. me your dad? I don't know. What is that again? You know, but uh, that's the language they're using. The book is called. But it doesn't. Does, it does, I'm, uh, I would say this, though, too. I would ask you this, though. Doesn't it feel good to have somebody say you are my mentor? I mean, there is a something that's. Oh, yeah. No, I'm honored. Responsibility. I'm honored. Yeah, exactly. I'm almost intimidated by it. Uh, yeah. I this up. I'm, I'm, I'm your mentor. Uh, you know, that's. <laughs> In a sense, it's almost like a, like one of my children. Um, it becomes yeah, no. an intimate relationship to me. The moment they use mentor, I just thought I was giving you some tips. <laughs> right, right. 
But see, that's the interesting part of the language is that we hear it one way when we are told this and they have an expectation of that in, when they walk into that, but they may not get that. Right. So we, one of my suggestions would simply be define what you mean by a mentor when you enter into the relationship so that you each have the same definition of what you expect of each other. Yeah. Isn't it interesting if you ask me that question, I sometimes refer to it as uh, executive coaching, which gets into somebody more. I'm not going to tell you how to run your laundromat. I'm getting into your life uh, around that laundromat. And um, that's a term in a sense, maybe that's generational now that I thought I was doing. Right. Well, it's interesting because coaching is, a, is a, probably a subset of mentoring, but mm-hmm. I think coaching has greater specificity just by its word. You know, I'm coaching right. you. Right, right, right. Uh, well, okay. So now we have, uh, we, 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 uh, let's hope we're coming through a pandemic, but it's cha- oh, yes. it certainly has changed us. And uh, I used to, I mean, three, four years ago, I would laugh when I heard somebody was, you know, working at home. Now right. we're all, who's laughing? It's we found ways to do it. It's effective, but we, it seems like we're crawling back into more of a hybrid. Um, yes. Tell me how this is affecting the, the various generations. Well, it's, let me start with the Gen Xers because they get the least amount of press anyway. I believe they're the only generation designed for a pandemic. Hmm. Because they are, uh, if you if you go with the generalization about who they are, this latchkey kid, self-sufficient, figure it out, that's who they've been. So when they had to transition from the office to the home, they just figured it out. Boomers, we're older and our habits are longer and we're a product of the office. You know, when would we arrive? Early. When do we leave? Late. And we're empty nesters. So this is more disruptive to us. Because we also have made, by the way, which is another interesting side note, we made our friends at the office. That's who yeah. our friends are. We made them. Right. And so uh, what's interesting, senior management today is saying we should all go back to the office. This is boomers. And, and we are hearing that. Young people are hearing that as an accusation, like you're doing this to me. And they're not doing that. They're saying we're doing this for you. So, But there's a disconnect between these because the young, the millennials and the Gen Z, they have an expectation now, based on the pandemic, nothing collapsed. Why shouldn't I have greater flexibility with how I operate? Right. My caution there is very simply, be careful what you wish for, because you could get that. And right. then what do you become if you are not here? Right. Not only that, but, and, and you said this, I just want to reiterate it, is that if you asked me about you know, my corporate experience, nine out of 10 stories would be the relationships I formed, the friendships that I had, the, the things that we did at the office, the, the the pranks we may have played all of that. I don't, I don't play a whole lot of pranks on me in my, in a home office. Uh, so we're missing that. And, and, um, and I agree with you. We are. I'll tell you what else we're missing is we're, we're balkanizing our population in the sense that young people don't intermi- intermix with uh, people my age as much. So right. we, don't, we don't do that. I had, I think there was a book called Fractured that had some ridiculous percentage, something like 6% of us are only interact with people younger than 30 if, who are not related to us. Wow. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And the other thing, to your point, the young people are, uh, need to make their network early in life, and you can't make a network 
remotely. You have to, you, you do a better job if you interact and to your point, make some friends through crucible experiences. You know, those horrible times that we've had to work really late. Right. But we re recollect that as one of the better times. Right. That interesting. I, I never really thought about it, but you're absolutely right. Those those stressful times where we all had the band together and we were whining the whole time are, yeah. is the first story that we tell, and we don't tell it frowning. We tell it with a sort oh. of with a proud smile. Yes, yes, yes. That's why I, I would push past some of this grumbling because that will turn into a unifying. If we all share the complaint, we're going through a crucible. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Last question for you. We, we, yes, sure. We talked about mentors. And, and how, at least for me, and I think you too, uh, I, I, you know, generationally, we, we, we never saw it coming, uh, but, right. but here it is. And it's, it's a term that we, you know, we're now embracing. How about you? What, what mentors did you have in your life? Yeah, it's interesting because I've been on my own, not unlike yourself, I've been on my own for probably about 30 years. So I, I haven't had the, the luxury of mentors. I, I've had people that have been helpful but but the mentor because uh, i think to your point is right about what 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 did they do for me so for instance when i was in corporations then i had people that were helping me i can remember one man tom green he helped me i remember him and he helped me under, understand that i wasn't probably perfect for the thing i was doing but i had a really good gift in one aspect of what i was doing and he encouraged me and i thought that was the essence of what you should do find what's good about the people that are working for you and find a situation you can place them in that they can do that. That was my favorite mentoring experience. And I wouldn't, I never forgot it. Right. And that was right. 40 years ago. Right. So, you know, mine was again with Larry DeMoncus. I never forgot it. He taught, it was invaluable. The lessons he taught me, he was the greatest trainer I ever saw and was so welcoming and warm with his time and his expertise. And yet, it took me three decades to, to realize, I think that was my mentor. Other than that, it was my dad. Right, no, it's amazing, right. If you do it right, you, you're, you're sort of like this quiet guide, and then the person who's experiencing it doesn't experience it like in the moment necessarily, but they experience it in reflection. Right. Right. And I do have people that double back. I'll get an email or a call sometime. Met you 20 years ago. Met you. And you really changed this and that. I'm like, what's your name again? <laughs> I did. Uh, but but yeah, I think that's uh, that is a part of this process as well. Folks, the book is called Why I Find You Irritating. Navigation, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. Came out May 3rd. How's it doing? How's it doing? Well, I don't know yet. I've been, you know, it's interesting. Well, you do, you know this better than I do because I saw it on your website and I thought, yeah, that's what I want because you encourage the idea of if you're going to present to large groups, buy the book right. because give the book out because the book reinforces the learning. Well, they've, uh, that's been happening. So in the last, I've been selling, or I've been selling a lot of books just by virtue of the fact they order them in bulk, which I think is great. It's a little unnerving because people that I don't I've never been at a book signing and uh, people ask you to sign the book. It just feels it feels so different. I, I, well, it's a weird feeling. I'm going to give you um, a piece of advice and then we'll we'll call it a day here. But I'm going to yeah, tell sure. you, but it didn't come from me, it came from perhaps another mentor of mine, my father-in-law. Mm -hmm. And I was always a little uncomfortable about things like that. And he said to yeah. me, he said, do you know what courage it takes for somebody to walk up? you know, and ask 
an author to do that. And so, um, and, and, and frequently it's followed, it's, there's some praise around there as well. And my instinct was, oh, please, I'm, you know, I put my, my pants on the same way you do, one leg at a time. I am, wow. And I, I learned to be grateful and appreciative, which is exactly what they want. Not, and so block that instinct, take pride in it, give them a good signature, um, tell them how grateful you are and make their day. They just made yours. Well, you've given me some, that's a lovely piece of advice. Thank you, Rob. That's really good. And I will do that. You bet. I'll get past uh, this. <laughs> good. And it is. It's uh, for those of you who've ever thought about writing a book, uh, trust me. It's one of the nicest things that we do. We look forward to it. Don't ever be embarrassed to come up to us. Yes. Ask for a signature. Um, as you can hear right now, we're trying to work out how to control our feelings because we're so uh, overwhelmed with the emotion of that particular experience. So you're going to buy the book, folks. You're going to enjoy that book and you're going to write a review on that book because that's the, the other than asking a guy like Chris to sign it. The other nicest thing you can do is write a nice review for him. Chris isn't going to ask you. So I'm asking you get out there and write yourself a verified review and you'll have done a really nice thing for another human being. It matters. And uh, so now that's my commercial. Uh, go get that book and, and, and take care of our buddy, Chris. Because, Chris, I enjoyed the conversation immensely, and I'm grateful oh gosh, to have had you. you on the show. Thank you, Rob. You've been great. Well, it's a pleasure. How, by the way, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, well, they can go to my website, which is cpdesantis.com, or they can actually, I have a podcast with a, a colleague of mine, Mary Abajay. We have a 30-minute uh, business advice. You, you write us a question, we give you an answer. It's called Cubicle Confidential. And it's anywhere there's a podcast. Beautiful. You write us okay. a question, Rob. Write us a question. You bet. <laughs> well, okay. So now and you're going to listen to that podcast. You're going to write a nice review. And then you're going to remind yourself, hey, wait a minute. I listened to Jollices. We're going to write a review on that one. Because just like books, we like those two. In any case, look, folks, we'll do it again as well as we can next time. Until then, everybody, stay safe. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Outcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more information on this show and Rob at Jollis.com.